Well, yes, well then, let's dive into the film. Um, we open with some imagery of some, uh, like, floating legs um, and um, a voiceover um, from a child um, telling us that, you know, uh, instead of having skyscrapers, you know, like, there's so many people on the planet that there's going to be no space to bury them. So instead of having skyscrapers, um, let's have, um, you know, skyscrapers that go downwards and we can go visit our loved ones. Um, underground um, which is not a thing I would want to do I would not want to visit a thing that is like you know 20 stories underground with the mausoleums <laughs> like I'm I'm sorry kid I understand what you're trying to say but that is just not a thing that appeals to me I mean even the catacombs in Paris like scare the living hell out of me I'm like I, I couldn't even think of the idea of going into the catacombs in Paris um, it would be insanity um, but yes the talk of skyscrapers though um, kind of makes sense because we get to meet Tom Hanks um, and he's talking to the narrator um, who is played by Thomas Horn, uh, who we find out is Oscar. And he talks about the times he spent with his father and how he used to do these things called reconnaissance missions where he would basically leave clues for his son uh, around New York and he would kind of spin tall tales of uh, the sixth borough um and you know he had his own kind of mythology with his son um you know he talked about how central park wasn't where it was and he got dragged across could not happen sorry tom's character <laughs> just not realistic there's so much like granite and stuff that you just like they stand on those rocks that are basically immovable so you know they had to blow the place up with bloody tnt for like a decade to get you know central park to be the shape it is so are you um, trying to be yeah. realistic about this <laughs> I, know, I know uh yeah I, so i'm like that's that's the point <laughs> yeah i i mean i'll say i'll say this like this kind of opening where we get to meet tom hanks obviously the star of the show even when his character is not in this film it is going to be a non-stop you know it is literally poochie you know when when he's not on screen people should be asking where is poochie People should, when when Tom Hanks is not on screen, every character should be saying where is Tom Hanks, and that is what they pretty much do for most yeah. of the film. Um, you know, the the grandmother is only defined as being the mother of his father, like she doesn't get her own name. <laughs> so, like you know, uh, everything is kind of about this relationship. But we find out, you know, why the son um, is not, you know, particularly upbeat about things. Um, and one of those things is because roughly 10 minutes into the f this film, we run slap bang into 9-11 yeah. and we will keep returning to 9-11 as the film goes on. Um, when I say 9-11, of course, I'm referring to uh, 2001, that 9-11, not any other 9-11s after. Um, and, you know, we'll get these flashbacks throughout the film uh, where we see what happened on that day from each of the characters perspectives. Um, and obviously the kind of burden of that uh, weighs heavily on this. You know, the film came out a decade after, kind of almost yeah. almost near the anniversary, and it is kind of the main plot point. I was saying before we started recording, I'm, I find it hard to think of any films that aren't about the events of that day that you just use this as the background, because I don't, even now, tw you know, 21 years later, I, I, it's very hard for people to just kind of use 9-11 as a plot point. Mm. Um, you know, as the comedian Steve Randazzo found out to his cost, you can't just be like 9-11 is a thing, you know, and just kind of have it in the background. It's like, it's so, it's, I, I mean, I think it's a good choice. I mean, I think it works maybe probably better on the page. You'd have to tell me, Robert, having read the novel. Um, but on the film, it start like, 
it's when I saw it at the cinema again I said I hadn't really seen the trailer I, I kind of didn't really know what the plot was about you know the poster is the kid with his hands over his face with the words written on him yeah. and so I was just like I you know I, I'll just see it and and much like when I saw the film Remember Me um, you know in 2010 um, you get to the final moments of that film and it turns out it's set on 9-11 probably one of the most hilarious endings I've ever seen to a film particularly because unfortunately I, when hilarious I, well <laughs> when I saw it in the, when I saw that in the cinema um, it was full of Twilight fans and <laughs> they were when they figured it out when they when they realized what was going to happen there was there was murmuring in the cinema and there were people crying as the as the like first plane kind of struck and and it was just such a, it was I mean, it was such a weird viewing, but I was just like, I was sitting in my chair being like, what is going on? Everyone else was like bawling their eyes out because they just realized Robert Patterson's being killed. Um, so I, th- I think the choice to kind of, you know, set this on 9-11 is obviously, you know, a kind of very bold one. Um, you know, I, you could have set it like 10 years earlier and just had his dad die a different way. But I guess, you know, they, they, they kind of very, they don't really refer to it as 9-11 as well. For most of the film, they just call it the worst day. Um, and they expect the audience to kind of pick up on that. But yeah, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel about it being like, you know, a plot point basically (laughs) in this, in this I think it works especially better in the book because the book was much earlier. It was what came out in 2005, right? And so he was basically writing this book immediately after these events happened. And he was making the connection to the bombing of Dresden. And he he likes, even with uh, everything is illuminated, Saffron Fowler did, uh, essentially he's going after, I, I wrote about this in my blog. I think this quote was from someone else, not him. How he goes for subjects that are ungraspable. Like he deliberately tries to tackle a thing that you can't tell a story about. And try to find a way to tell a story about it. And that's why I think that this movie is... Both I enjoy it, and I kind of hate it. Because it misses the point of what he's going for. It puts it all on this kid. And then either you buy into that, or you have no reason to care. Because the old, like the grandfather, Max von Sydow, is wonderful in this movie, but... Even he doesn't have that much screen time relative to the kid. And the twist at the end comes a little late and it's just like, it misses. But also it was, you know, it was in this country. I think a lot of the, why it could have been loved by certain people in like the industry is they love to go for a movie that grabs at their feelings about something big. You know, just like Holocaust movies will be up for war movies will be up for things. This was that American version of that. We had our own thing again. Yeah. Which is and kind of messed up I, to say, but. I mean, we, we also see that it, it's set in 2002. So it's like he says it's a year since he lost his dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see that he has like a little kind of shrine to his dad, which has like an antiphone, uh, you know, uh what are they called? Machine. There we go. Yeah. That's the word. Um, along with a bunch of other stuff, obviously, that, you know, reminds him of his father. Um, and so, you know, we, the kind of the answer, the answer, like the, the messages that are left on the answer phone, you know, form a kind of a very key plot point throughout the film. Um, but yes, yeah, so Keith, how do you feel about 9-11 as a plot point for a kid who is going to wander around New York for, you know, two hours? Yeah, it's hmm, it's a touchy thing because i was very young when 9-11 occurred so it's something that i didn't quite 
grasp nearly as much as my parents, let's say, but it was something that I was cognizant of watching on the news. So it, it certainly is a, something that sticks in my head, but not in a way where I quite understood the scope of the tragedy until a little bit later. Um, and as I always find myself in this weird, I guess, midway point when I see art that is tackling it, where I feel I recognize the certain beats that are being hit, but it still has a weird abstract uh, relationship to me in some ways. As far as how it's handled in the film itself, I found myself a little repelled by it, I will say. Uh, there are moments mm-hmm. in the performances that do, I think, give it proper weight, especially from Sandra Bullock and Tom Hanks when they, when we see them, which we'll get to, of course. But uh, I, yeah. I felt, I don't know if uncomfortable is the right word, but I wasn't sure if it was quite tackling... The, the subject in a way that felt any more than just we're going to hit this beat because we know it is something that is emotional for people and that was something that was a little frustrating to me watching it both at the time that I saw yeah. it and again recently yeah and I mean obviously like the these antiphone messages throughout the film like we'll hear the first one when he when he gets home uh, the first time and it's just him saying you know everything's fine you know we're waiting for the 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 fire you know the fire people to get here and stuff you know we're we're gonna you know we're staying in place we're gonna uh, be evacuated soon and we'll hear that one a few times because obviously then as the film goes on we'll we'll then add more and more of those messages um of course this then leads oscar to uh you know his his parents wardrobe where he's telling us about how and considering it's only 2002 uh, you know, his mother hasn't done anything with you know his father's clothes or anything, which yeah. I think was probably something that was was similar for anyone who lost someone in in two thousand one. Like you know, it, it was very difficult for you to kind of grasp the idea of them being gone. Um, and you know, there were some people who kind of survived. Uh, you know, not everyone was killed. Obviously, a lot of people died that day, but you know, there were some people who managed to get out and stuff, and were maybe missing for a few months or stuff. You know, like so, uh, not everyone wants to think. And obviously, we'll get to later on when when you know. Uh, a couple of characters cross and and that is shown you know not not everyone did actually lose someone you know but they might have lost them in the sense that you know they were missing for for a couple of months um so you know maybe she didn't want to do anything till it was confirmed um and the process of which of course took years you know in terms of like you know confirming the people who had actually died in it um and so while he's kind of walking around narrating to us about you know what's been happening uh, he goes to grab something and he ends up knocking over a vase, which then in it has a key, which is inside an envelope. Um, you know, he calls his he calls his grandmother, who lives in the block, like opposite but slightly further down, so he can see her with the binoculars across the street. Um, and he has the uh, the walkie-talkie that he used to take with his dad when they went out on their reconnaissance missions. And so, you know, obviously now she has the other one, and he will he will call her and kind of. Um, you know kind of ask her about stuff and he talks about you know what's you know did she meant did any was anything mentioned about this key um you know did she know anything about it uh i think obviously this recalls the classic scene from big uh where they have the walkie talkies between the people who live opposite each other it's really weird hmm. that the grandmother managed to get an apartment that close to their apartment which looks like a like a it's got a doorman uh, played by john goodman um you know so that building is probably costing a hell of a lot uh the size of it as well that's not a small apartment that they're in uh i'm not quite sure how sandy bullock is maintaining the rent 
uh, without you know Tom's uh, Tom's wages coming in. Uh, but apparently their grandmother is wealthy enough that maybe she's in a rent control apartment uh, that is in a smaller building that's opposite. Um, obviously, the, him being able to see across that building will form a, a couple of plot points as the film goes on. Uh, he goes to see Stephen Henderson, uh, also appeared in June. Uh, and uh, and um, not the old June, the new June. Um, and uh, he is the locksmith, and he looks at the key, and he's basically like, it could be for anything. <laughs> like, he's no real help, quite frankly. Um, you know, he's very vague, and so uh, Oscar, you know, kind of this is this is where he's like, you know, he sees on the the envelope uh, the the name Black, um, and he comes up with a plan. Um, Again, uh, I mean, uh, there there obviously is a conversation in here about, you know, whether or not um, Oscar as a character has some level of autism or is on the spectrum. Of course, with this being when it was, they they mention Asperger's, uh, but obviously you know again that's not that's generally not seen as the kind of correct term these days i mean you know we would just mostly say that he's on the spectrum um although i mean i would say like in terms of the portrayals of people with some kind of you know measure of autism it's i mean aside from him being anxious about new york city which quite frankly if you were like a kid and you had seen those two towers locked down. Uh, 2002, I don't think you it, we would be completely wrong for literally every child to be anxious of going on the subway or going in lifts. Or, you know, like, there are things that, you know, to me would seem to be very normal things for children to be uh, scared about. Um, you know, and obviously him thinking about 9-11 does tend to kind of make him anxious. He has a tambourine uh, that he carries with him, which he shakes quite a lot during this film, to calm himself down. Um, and he does give a list when he's out on the street of the things that make him, you know, anxious. Uh, one of which is people looking up. So I'm guessing he would not like the film uh, Don't Look Up. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, you know, he, we kind of get the idea that he's going to basically, he's got this idea that he's going to talk to every single person with a surname black in the entire of the five boroughs of New York. And he comes up with a list. Um, and that list will end up being 216 addresses um, and... I mean, it's kind of insane that like a child would kind of do this, but I guess, you know, this is how he would interact with his father, you know, like, uh, you know, between him and his father, they would like to go on treasure hunts of stuff. And there is, you also get the feeling that obviously um, his father would come up with these fictions about, you know, the sixth borough or something like that. And he would be, we see him like um, metal detecting like late at night in Central Park. <laughs> and you get the feeling he's finding stuff that his father buried. You know, like his father gave him these clues for stuff that he did and kind of guided him towards them through their kind of interactions, um, you know, which, of course, makes uh, Tom Hanks's character, you know, the best dad who ever lived. Um, and now he's dead. That memory cannot be sullied. Um, right. Although there is an interesting thing where, of course, he talks about how, you know, he feels that the memory of his father is fading and the only way for him to kind of keep in touch with it is to is to kind of do this kind of treasure hunt thing where he talks to every single person with the surname black in the entire of new york uh which apparently will take him three years but he wants to do that so that you know he can kind of keep his father's memory alive um and this is basically this is the plot of the film this is yep. what we're going to be looking at for like the next hour and a half is a kid talking to a bunch of strangers uh in essence um and uh i mean i think it's you know i i again i think it's probably something that works better on the page i mean maybe because we're getting a lot of narration from the kid so he's having to explain everything that he's doing i think there's mm -hmm. parts of this where we could lose the narration and just have him 
um, you know, putting like the index together, making a list of names. Like we'd understand what's happening. Um, you know, he goes to John Goodman, who is playing the doorman, uh, in a role where like, he's only like three scenes. Like it's it's an extended cameo, if anything. Um, and he kind of says, can I have like all the telephone books, you know, for the five boroughs? And he's like, why? And he's like, it's for a project at school about the censors. Um, you know, this we will find out later on is a thing that tips somebody off to what's happening. Um, but there is a nice bit of conversation here where obviously he's afraid to use lifts, which, you know, in 2002, I would understand anybody in New York being afraid to get into lifts. Um, uh, or I believe in America, you call them elevators. Um, and so, he always takes the stairs um, and towards the end of the film, we get a nice little thing where he says, you know, he uses a lift and he says the stairs are broken. And every time he uses the stairs, he says the elevator's broken to John Goodman. Um, so I think, you know, John Goodman is OK in the, the few scenes mm-hmm. that he's in. Um, but yeah, how do we feel about this setup? And Robert, please tell me if it makes more sense in the book and is, is better kind of established. I, I think it, the biggest problem is the that the movie has and it's something the book can get away with is it's a tonal. It, it doesn't fit. It's structurally, it's a kid's film. It's about a little kid wandering the city by himself in a magical adventure to be close to his father. But then the actual reality of what it, that is taking place in is so big. And especially when the book came out, this is a little more, a few more years distant. I, I was wondering on like Metascore things, can you separate them by geography? Did New York critics love it or hate it more than like West Coast critics? And what what voting block was that five percent that got at the Oscar nomination? Yeah. Because did like did it really work for the New York filmmakers because they were so close to nine eleven and they appreciated this book and went in for it and the flaws didn't matter? Or was it because it was so wholesome and still dealt with something that no one else could figure out how to deal with that they were like, this is all we're going to get. We might as well nominate it now, so maybe someone will try again. I mean, I think you're, you're correct there, Robert, in that it does feel like it is, you know, it is meant to be like a magical thing about this kid wandering around New York on this mm-hmm. quest. And it does feel like that would fit more the tone of like a kid's movie. Yeah. Um, but then you have um, Tom Hanks, America's dad, and this kid's dad, uh, dying in 9-11 like that's not a thing that could be in a kids movie that without it drastically changing the tone and obviously that is right. kind of what's happened um have you crunched the numbers yeah Keith? i mean uh i don't have quite an official aggregate there but uh robert did you did kind oh. of inspire me to look through because like they uh metacritic does i wasn't even sure if that was possible you, you can look at uh <laughs> all of the critics who sent in scores or were taken in and who were yeah. given, assigned what score and from what I see, for the most part, uh, a lot of the New York critics of note uh, were very negative towards it. I look at um, okay. uh, the New York. I just had it. The New Yorker, David Denby, gave it uh, a forty. Noah Dargis, the New York Times, also gave it a forty. I noticed the New York Post gave it a twenty-five with Lou Lemonick. So, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, very sub-average scores, even for the uh, the film's reception at the time. I. Wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the I couldn't speak to the Academy in general, but I would assume that a lot of the voters there are more LA based and perhaps would respond quite well to it. Yeah. But could also just be the sentimental factor hitting a lot of people in New York as well. I mean, there's still that WGA East, isn't there? So you know, maybe that maybe that voting block uh, influenced it a little bit. <laughs> um, you know, with them being on the East Coast, maybe they were like, "We'll sh- we'll show those LA guys. We'll put we'll put a New York film in here." 
Or it was I'm the West cute. Coast thinking, we're going to do something for the New Yorkers. Look at this lovely <laughs> film about 9-11. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I get the feeling New Yorkers are offended. (laughs) I get the feeling that the votes probably came mostly from probably you know the uh, the older the older voting block rather than either coast. But uh, yeah, Uh, I mean, Keith, how are you feeling about this this, the setup for what is going to be the main plot driver for this? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, it's a it's a plot. It's something to. I understand from the the perspective of childlike wonder in terms of just trying to find uh, something that is graspable, but also is a large enough scale that it is uh, a hard th- an arduous thing to surmount uh i don't know that i found myself too compelled by i guess maybe this is a sub question what do you guys think about thomas horn in the movie because he like he, he i will say this he's an actor who does not have a wikipedia page which is kind of surprising for someone who is the lead of a best picture nominated movie. <laughs> yeah wow. i did i didn't notice that he has done a little bit of acting after this but this seems to be the main thing that he did yeah. mm-hmm. uh if you try and find his presence online he's got a twitter which i don't think he's used in years uh I certainly doesn't use it frequently and a lot of his retweets are just people saying i really liked this film Right. Um, so you know that seems but I was uh, here's what I will say like there's a couple of scenes in this film I, I'm going to admit I'm a manly mm-hmm. man I did cry at a couple of the, the scenes mm-hmm. you know there's, there's some interactions later on where you know they're, they're, they're kind of particularly talking about you know the, the loss of Tom Hanks and you know that is a thing that's probably going to happen in the real world at some point very you know not very soon but you know in the next couple of decades you know we've you know so you know it does kind of make you think about that this is only the fifth time that Tom Hanks has like died in a film um, hmm. it's rare that he ever dies in a film <laughs> um, and again this is another off screen death uh, he's only died on screen twice he tends to die off screen rather than on screen um, and so you know uh, it's just one of those things where like he's got to carry the majority of the film like it's going to ta- it's going to take us like almost uh, like an hour before we actually get to meet Max von Sydow and right. he's gone after 30 minutes in this film so most of this is going to be Thomas Horn. Fortunately, when we get to the first person on the list, he has Viola Davis, who is obviously one of the best actors currently working. Um, you know, and later on he'll have Jeffrey Wright, who of course mm-hmm. is a, a delight in everything he does. Uh, most recently, French Dispatch. I mean, you know, his part of that film. I mean, p- people people can say what they want about Wes Anderson, but he basically had, you know, a character that was like a gay black man you know run the film for 30 minutes and mm-hmm. you know jeffrey wright was just a, an amazing performer in that in that film so um you know so fortunately thomas horn has those people to kind of act against um you know and the, the scenes with him and and you know sandra bullock they're very very few scenes but obviously when they do finally get you know on screen together um you know they are very well done but I mean, it's not like he's a terrible actor. This is a thing. Like I don't, I don't think he's bringing the film down or anything. There's just so much narration, and uh, you know, his ca- his character is is always moving. You know, this is the yeah. thing. Like he's always going somewhere and stuff. So, um, I I just you know, I I guess there's a reason why he didn't really act in anything much after this. Maybe he didn't he didn't really want to. You know, maybe he just wanted to go back to school, be a normal kid. You know, that's understandable. But I I don't think this is a detriment to the film. But at the same time, I think there are a few scenes where the heavy lifting is being done by, you know, other other people on screen. And it, it's, you know, that's that's kind of what's carrying the film is is the is the the people that he meets throughout the film more than him, basically. I think even when he is the weak part, it's more his character than his acting as well. I think he's playing this character really well. But this character is sort of though they don't say it in the book and don't say it in the movie, is autistic. And 
he plays that well because he does a good job of not being he doesn't emote like other people and he doesn't interact in a normal way but he does it's it he's playing what they wrote is what he's playing and i but i think also that's a character we don't expect and most of us don't like as a to carry a story we don't want to watch that I mean, when he gets, like, overwhelmed by all the things in New York and he's kind of, like, covering his ears and stuff, and mm-hmm. he, you know, which is a, a bit of a cliche in terms of plain autistic people, uh, this is not to see as music, so, you know, we're not going to those depths. Um, well, but, I, you know, he... he <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, uh, but you know, so he is, he is like you say, he's playing, a, a char- playing this character well in terms of what's written, um, you know, and I think the problem is that that character can be a bit irritating as the film goes on. Um, you know, uh, and but it, I would it, say it goes back to what you were <clears> saying about, or what I has said in comment to you about the realism. Is yes. I think what Saffron Four is doing, and why I like the book so much, is he made this. He wasn't aiming for autism, but he was aiming for a kid that doesn't understand and can't accept the reality that's so big. Because he's writing for New York and America that has had this horrible thing happened and so many people didn't know how to process it and so you you tackles that through this kid who doesn't know how to process most things yeah and so it just becomes another thing that is too big for him and it's it's a good way to go about the story but clearly not executed as well enough because an audience doesn't like it i mean i would say much like uh jamie lee curtis said when she was being interviewed about halloween kills uh it is about trauma um and um well i think you know we the first person that he meets alphabetically of course is abby black mm-hmm. uh, played by viola davis and uh, in a performance that feels like it's walked in from a completely different film <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's like so completely different to everything that's happening that you're like first of all you're like of course it's viola davis uh, you know, she's a great actor. So, yeah. but you're, it's so complete. Like, you know, Jeffrey Wright very quickly runs out of this, this, you know, this, uh, uh, this brownstone as 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 uh, as Thomas Horn arrives, and we get this conversation uh, where he tells her some facts about elephants while she sits sobbing on the stairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm assuming this is they are going through a divorce, uh, like, and that is what's happening. He is boxing stuff up and moving out. Um, I'm not sure how she's going to afford that brownstone by herself. I, she, maybe she's got a very good job, but um, it's just one of the concerns that keeps yeah, coming back to me. Is how maybe they afford. own it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. There's the property uh, taxes or whatever, but <laughs> yeah, I mean he he does he has got a job that involves talking to Japan, so maybe he's making enough money that yeah they own it outright. Um, but yeah, so you know he exp- you know he tells her these facts about elephants. And, you know, she, it almost seems like her character's about to say, okay, uh, that's very nice, but can you please leave? Um, but then he says, oh, my dad died in 9-11. <laughs> and instant she's like, I mean, straight away, like, you can't kick out a kid who says his dad died in 9-11. Um, certainly not in the year 2002. Um, and so, you know, she gives she gives him this picture of the, the, the elephant that's crying. What I thought was quite interesting is this kid is like, it was clearly manipulated in Photoshop because obviously people are the only animal that can cry. Um, and I thought that was interesting for them to drop Photoshop like that. Like, I, I mean, it just to me, it just seems weird. It's like a very early, you know, Photoshop was obviously quite big 
in the early 2000s but mostly with designers and stuff i don't think photoshop in terms of like manipulating a photo was really in the parlance in 2002 uh let's say but i you know uh, I just I did find this scene to be quite good, you know. Like I think Thomas Horne is is holding his own against Viola Davis, who, like I said, one of the greatest living actors. <laughs> you know, she is, and also of course this was a big year for her as well because it's the year of the Help, where she was uh, you know getting her first Best Actress nomination. So yeah. it really felt like we were. I remember when I cut up with this, just thinking like, oh, what a she was clearly very much uh, in the pocket for a lot of people paying attention to the industry for her to get a a noted supporting part like this around that time, post doubt. And uh, yeah, no doubt. Oh yeah, no, fantastic, fantastic mm-hmm. film. Um, you know, as I said, directed by the director of Joe versus the volcano. Joe versus the volcano. Some <laughs> <laughs> some play. <laughs> he, he went from such a such a weird career. Uh, but yeah, uh, like I said, Jeffrey Wright walks very past very quickly. If you don't know Jeffrey Wright, then you probably wouldn't pay any attention to him. But obviously, I do know Jeffrey Wright. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in Source Code the year before this, um, and so and you hear his voice as he leaves as well. And you're like, that's Jeffrey Wright. Uh, he's clearly got to come back at some point in this film. We can't have Jeffrey Wright for a three second voice cameo. Um, but yeah, uh, we see some images of a falling man uh, again. Something that will recur throughout the film. Uh, there's a nice kind of capper to that at the very end, uh, which we could talk about when we get there. And we find out in a flashback that on 9-11, he was hiding underneath uh, like the couch, which I, I've got to be honest, that's where I probably would have been if I was in New York on September 11th, 2001. Um, and his grandmother comes in and finds him. Um, and then obviously his his mom comes home from work. This is probably the real kind of the meat of like us meeting San, Sandy Bullock. We'd seen her earlier. Um, but this is kind of where we we get to see what she you know she's come back from work she's trying to see if uh, her husband's there um we find out that he swapped the answer phones out um you know i don't know why they had two models of the same answer phone i don't know where he got the money to buy a second answer phone that's the exact same model uh but he records the the greeting again saying you know this is the fact of the day obviously it feels like that's something probably in the novel that expanded on a bit more but we only see it once here where he kind of does the answer phone message for each day i'm assuming with a fact um and so he re-records the one for September two thousand, uh, September 11, 2001, and put, takes the answer phone machine so that nobody else will have to hear it, which um, I, I think is probably one of the things that I find to be a bit, you know, quite touching. Like, he doesn't want his, his mom or his grandmother to hear the final messages that, you know, uh, their son or husband uh, left on this particular machine. Obviously, he's the one that heard them, and it's kind of traumatized him a little bit, so he doesn't want them to, to feel that, that same trauma. Um, and you know i i think that like kind of obviously in his mind he always refers to this that particular date as you know like the you know like the the worst day day. and i don't know if it's just because obviously the people who died in the twin towers or if it's specifically because of the the, it's the day that his dad died Uh, probably it's both um but i i kind of i kind of like that in this moment he just has this thought of like he's got to you know he's experienced the trauma and we'll find out as the film goes on you know what the other messages are and he doesn't want anyone to kind of to 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 experience that same thing again i think it's one of the good scenes from uh from thomas horn he you know he really plays the kind of uh the protective son you know really well um you know while also obviously being you know completely shell-shocked himself and not kind of really not realizing that uh until later on in the film um 
And we see he starts to go about his search, meeting more people called Black. Um, you know, he meets Hazel Black. Again, I thought this was a nice scene where they're kind of, you know, uh, he's he's meeting this kind of uh, a black family, uh, an African-American family as well, black in both senses. And obviously they're kind of participating in this uh, kind of like a religious thing and they're kind of praying for him and kind of singing. And, you know, it, like it's funny because he will talk about how he'd only allocated like, you know, five minutes to meet each each kind of person but it was taken a lot longer than he expected and i think i think that's kind of like a nice sentiment like he he has this order of how he's going to go around meeting them how he's going to travel to them obviously he's lying to his mother he does this thing again where he counts his lies which quite frankly is very irritating and i'm not going to go into much more than that uh, it just gets very like i'm sure on the page it works but as a narration device it's just really really irritating that he keeps counting his own lies like no person would really do that in real life um you know and has he never lied before the day that he starts counting them probably not he probably has you know um but yeah so i like these interactions and then you know he meets this woman who's got the horse and like one of the horse girls gives him like a kiss on the cheek because she's found out about his his dead father um you know and he starts using his grandfather's camera to take pictures of each of them uh to put into a book so he can kind of collate the information uh, as he goes uh, obviously also trying you know the, the the key in various different locks i think individually they work uh, his meetings with the different people it, i i think the montage maybe doesn't give us enough information about some of them it, like we're rushing through the part of the story that maybe should just like he is taking too long with each one it feels like that's what we need yeah is to spend more time with them and we're not getting it yeah i think um you know, I, I, you know, I felt very similar to Viola Davis. I think she brings a lot to her, her part, but I think otherwise the section, I'm not really feeling the specificity, I suppose, of the characters. It just feels like it's kind of adding on to the journey. I, I myself wasn't really connecting too much with uh, with some of the interactions here at this point. So I'm a little bit, uh, I guess, wary of um, the quest at this point myself. Uh, we do get an argument about uh, the coffin. They buried an empty coffin, as did many people who had uh, people that they lost in, on 9-11. Uh, obviously, we saw him earlier kind of um, uh, berating the fact that this is a stupid idea. He was wearing his karate gi under his coat, which I thought was an interesting choice. I guess he's, he's got to get to karate. He can't... Uh, oh, judo. I can't remember which... He he does actually have in his his, his, um, his kind of book where he's planning out the weekends and he figures out it's going to take three years. He does have it noted when he's got to go to his uh, martial arts practice. Um, so I guess it happened the same day as the as the funeral. Um, but obviously we find out from Sandra Bullock that, you know, they needed a place to go. Like, um, you know, as it turns out, I'm, I'm guessing by the time this film came out, they had identified most of the people who were in 9-11 and they did it by DNA. And it literally took years and years and years. Right. And even then they didn't confirm some people and some people are still missing. So, you know, the the idea that basically they had to have this quick burial of just an empty coffin just so they've got somewhere, you know, a grave to visit. Um, so, which they never do. They never visit the grave at any point. I would have liked that to have at least happened at some point because, you know, you're arguing over it. Let's at least see the kind of outcome of why you've done it. Um, but, it, you know, it wasn't, it was just, it was It was for everyone to kind of get some kind of closure. Obviously, that did not work. Um, you know, with Oscar, he's going to need to do something different to kind of get closure in terms of losing his father. Um, 
But then we get a little bit of a flashback and we find out that uh, a year ago, Sandy Bullock had some different hair. So we know that this is definitely not the current day because, of course, uh, when when in different time, when in different times, women make sure to change their hair at least every six months to a year. So that it's very so we can demarcate exactly where we are when we flash back to those moments. Just for certain life events, for sure. Yeah. So we know that Mm -hmm. specific point in time. Yeah, and obviously Tom Hanks does some great phone acting where he calls Sandy Bullock and he's still, he's in the World Trade Center and he's basically saying they're on the 105th floor and, you know, they're they're waiting, you know, to hear from the fire department. She says, get into a stairwell. Uh, he's sharing a phone with some other people. She has a flip phone. She has a, a Motorola that she flips open to answer, uh, you know, putting it back in, in this particular... And I, I should say as well, when the kid's going around, he's got a cell phone as well, but he's got like a Nokia brick. Uh, that he's carrying with him everywhere. They really, attention to detail when it comes to the mobile phones in this particular film. Um, but yeah, I mean, the speech from Tom is obviously, you know, he's won an Oscar a couple of times for a reason. And even on the phone, he's able to kind of convince, like he keeps saying, I've got to get, I've got to give the phone to someone else. Like, you know, like other people want to use the phone. And she keeps trying to say to him, you know, get out of there. Like, you know, don't, don't wait, you know, just get into a stairwell and, and just kind of get out of the building. Um of course, you know, we know now that there were a lot of people who tried doing that and they ended up in worse positions. Um, you know, obviously they couldn't use the lifts. You know, basically there was no way of getting out for a lot of people. Um, and she walks up to the window and sees the one tower that's been hit. And this is probably a moment I could do without. Like, we get it. It's nine eleven. I don't need Sandra Bullock staring at the first tower that's been hit. That's not a thing I need. Like, later on we'll have the collapse of the second tower. Oh, sorry, the collapse of the first tower, I think it is, before the after the second hit. Um, that kind of makes sense because it puts a bit of context into a phone call. But in this case, I don't just need her staring at a green screen, which has got like a CGI or even footage from... I don't know how they did it, but I'm going to guess CGI. Like, I can't even imagine the people working on that would be particularly happy with like... Uh, you know, if you're like a CGI artist, and they're like, oh, yeah, we need you to recreate the, the, the time that, you know, the Twin Towers were hit by the first plane. Um, like... She, she didn't need to look out the window i know in new york there's a lot of buildings with a lot of windows she could have been in an office that didn't have windows you know it, like other people could have been in the way she could, maybe she didn't get to the window i mean that's just me personally i just feel like that was uh, you know it was a hat on top of a hat it's like overcooking it a little bit we're already getting the phone call from him we already kind of know what his situation is uh i don't think we need to see the burning building for us to understand that that's where he is you know he's already said what floor he's on we already know that if he's on the 105th he's not going to make it out of there um you know we've already heard the answer phone machine message from earlier when he's trying to get hold of people like um you know feels like they're overcooking the the cake a little bit here so that's just me though maybe i don't know how you guys feel about uh this phone call i mean obviously the two separate elements i get your point yes but i i but i also i think i feel the exact opposite okay (laughs) because i i think especially because this movie is centered around a kid they are hoping that this movie is going to have some like staying power and still be watched in the future. And the farther we get away from those events, people don't know the visuals anymore. Like I teach high school students who like were born after that. Yeah. They haven't watched those towers go down. And I think you need visuals that are not only you do you need visuals of it specifically, but you need the idea that people around New York could see it. Like her looking out the window is that proximity thing that it's not just that her husband is in there. It's also these giant buildings that have been there since the seventies 
are falling down and I don't know how many, how large an area of New York could see it directly, but it's like hundreds of thousands of people. Well, we know one New Yorker could see it from his tower that has his name on and then called into a lot of news shows <laughs> yeah. about how it was now the biggest one on the island. So, um, yeah. but yeah, Keith, how are you feeling? I mean, more about the phone call than the visual. I mean, the visual is just a thing that I had a feeling on. But On the phone call itself, I'd say it also helps establish why she doesn't question the lack of phone messages on the answering machine is because she knew he called her phone. Right, and like, it could have easily been cut off before we got the chance to finish his calls to to their home yes that that else kind of be yeah as far as the the imagery i definitely understand that point robert but i think i was i mean it went more towards uh darren's response where perhaps the um the focus and the certain framing of some of the imagery maybe even less of the tower as much as we'll get to it before but interspersed the the hanks falling scenes were ones that made me a bit uncomfortable and felt less tasteful than i than i remembered the, the falling is straight out of the book even visually that that the can, book ends I, with those images i can believe it uh that that can track for me but um it was one of those things where i was perhaps maybe just speaking to each of our respective um how it hits us viscerally that was one that took me a bit of a by surprise in a way that i i had trouble processing let's say um so maybe there but i i I appreciate your your comments on it especially how future generations might react to it and those who might take it for granted who weren't around at the time i mean there were even people who were around at the time who for some reason seem to think that jet fuel cannot melt steel beams so i mean right you know oh oh, man we got a jet fuel (laughs) oh man (laughs) um so uh but you know here we are it's the second act everybody uh welcome to the film max von seidau uh he uh he has tattoos on his hands of yes and no uh he writes every response on a little tiny pad and he gets to meet oscar um and we we it's really weird because obviously he's got to tell you know he's got to tell the renter as he's only identified in which again most likely his grandfather tom hanks's father um possibly returned mm-hmm. obviously because you know tom hanks has died in the uh, in in the in 9-11 and, and you know obviously his his mother is probably quite traumatized about that and so maybe he's returned to kind of uh lend a bit of support uh, but he's only identified as the renter. We've heard about him earlier in the film. Um, and, you know, Max, uh, Max, Oscar goes over to the, uh, you know, the, the, his grandmother's and he meets uh, the renter. And then he kind of basically tells him the entire story and he does it very loudly and it overlaps in very different ways and um he says there's 216 addresses he's got to visit it's going to take him three years and he's tried his his key in 148 places and he just kind of loudly kind of yells over himself and you know it finishes with him kind of i mean being a bit frustrated with the fact that this guy doesn't talk uh obviously the yes and no tattooed on the hands off or for you know we don't know how long he's he's been not talking but i'm guessing long enough that he felt that that was a viable option um you know i would have liked him to have like a maybe on like one of his his kind of forearms and a you know no thank you on on the other one you know just give himself a couple of options um but yeah i mean as we said like it's it's weird because you know when you think of Max von Sydow, I certainly think of like his kind of um, you know Eastern European villain persona that is in a lot of films, 
um, you know, and, you know, June being one of those where I, I, don't, I certainly don't think he's the villain in that. But, you know, like, obviously he's there because he has like this exotic accent. So to have a film where he literally never utters a word is kind of interesting. You know, you take this guy who's yeah. known for having this very specific voice. Um, and, you know, his voice was, you know, it had like a wonderful timbre to it and everything. You know, like, that's why you got Max von Sydow was, you know, same reason you get Brian Blessed, because Brian Blessed will yell from the top of a mountain and people will hear it for six miles around. Like, there's a very specific reason to get certain actors. And I think for Max von Sydow, it is that accent. And we're not going to hear it, um, you know, in this particular film. Uh, so, I, you know, I thought that was an interesting thing. But also, like, the way that he kind of, it's weird because, like, it's weird to say it's acting, but the way he writes the notes... Uh, I'm guessing there was probably some production assistant who was writing some notes as well so that Max von Sydow didn't spend all day doing that. Um, but just the mm. way he acts as he's writing the notes uh, gives it like a certain tone, like his reaction to the questions. Yeah. And, you know, um, th there's a bit here where, uh, uh, you know, Oscar shows the fact that basically he's worried about what he's going to do, you know, and he's basically been kind of pinching himself, you know, which is kind of the early signs of obviously some self-harm. And, you know, like the way he reacts to the story being told um you know just it's on his face and it, it you know it, it it's it's kind of a you know it's a really good performance i can see why you know people nominated it um you know i don't know it gets not i don't know if it's better than albert brooks in drive albert brooks in drive is pretty great <laughs> it's, it's a pretty great role yeah, it's pretty, um, pretty darn good yeah, yeah that... you know it's pretty fun when he gets killed spoilers for drive but you know his death in drive is pretty is pretty great from albert brooks like him have you seen the screenplay for this I haven't. No, I, no, I, I haven't. I hadn't looked it up until now. I'm trying to find it because I'm wondering if part of the reason they cast him is the the structure of the book. His chapters in flashback are letters from him to Tom Hanks. Character. OK. And then the grandmother's perspective comes in letters she wrote to the renter. Yeah. I, I believe, or is it to Oscar? I forget who she's writing to. The, cla the classic structure their of story early kind of is they give two versions forth. of yeah. the same story. Okay, and I'm wondering if maybe they were going to have three different voiceovers, and so then his voice would have been a main part of the movie, even though his character never speaks on screen. I mean, that would make sense. Um, you know, I... but then it's going to be a really long movie. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I mean, there's no reason why he couldn't have had some voiceover like after he's met Oscar. And kind of give his thoughts on him without having to, you know, write everything down. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I, it's kind of nice because obviously Oscar realizes this guy isn't going to tell on him, and that's probably why he decides he's going to share his story once he finds out he doesn't speak. He's like, I can tell this guy everything, and he's not going to say anything to anyone. He might write it down on bits of paper, but it'd take him forever given the amount of information the kid gives him. Um, so, and I do like the relationship between these two actors. I think Max von Sydow, again, you know, like it's a lot to put on the the shoulders of this kid to kind of carry the film, uh, you know. And obviously, there's going to be scenes coming up where he's, you know, we see the flashbacks with him and Hanks, and obviously, you know, Hanks is very good at, uh, you know, carrying a scene for you know most actors. And you know, Max von Sydow, even though he's not talking, he is kind of carrying a lot of the scenes where it's his expressions and his reactions, um, you know, that kind of that kind of help out. Uh, but you know we kind of instantly get an idea that this is like you know a grandson and a grandfather and that is you know he even says you know he he walks like his father he shrugs his shoulders like his father like he you know he sees a lot of what his father did um in the renter um as they insist on calling yeah. him um but i uh it's interesting because i um i think when i remember this performance i mainly remember his moments of great 
angst and and distress, especially when Thomas Horn is communicating, you know, all the things that he's processing and he wants him to stop. One thing I forgot before we watching this movie is just how light and funny some of his his moments are. Like mm-hmm. well, when they're going to the uh, to ring the doorbell on the guy and the guy's yelling at them and he, they start to run away, but then Max Mancito turns back and rings the doorbell one more time before just kind of shuffling <laughs> off. Like it's a very humorous little moment that he plays, I think, very well um, in the smile on his face that I appreciated quite quite a lot from him in his contributions here. Yeah. And I think as well, obviously, you know, he the kid has been basically walking to all these addresses, which is why he's only been able to get two done on like a Saturday. <laughs> and it's like taking a long time for him to get through them. And this is where we kind of have it speed up a little bit, because, um, you know, first of all, on this particular in this particular day, you know, the renter says, I will, you know, I'll accompany I'll come with you today, you know, to go meet the people that you're going to meet, um, you know, and because obviously he's an elderly gentleman. Um, you know, Max von Sydow at the time being in his seventies, uh, he he can't walk everywhere like the kid. <laughs> like that's not that's not a thing that's going to happen. Uh, as a man in my forties, I'm not walking everywhere. Um, I'm certainly not walking all over New York. This is you know you've got literally one of the best subway systems outside of London uh, going on there. So use that. Um, and obviously that is what what happens you know um, he encourages him to come down onto the subway and says that he's got to kind of face his fears and also he says I'm not walking everywhere <laughs> so like you know it's kind of an ultimatum but I do like how this is you know this like when he's on the, the subway train obviously he's extremely anxious about being on the subway train and you know Max van Sydow is like just concentrate on me um, and this is where we find out that him and his his father uh, would have these kind of uh, what he refers to as oxymoron battles where they would list different oxymorons um, <clears throat> or I believe some people call them tautologies and and so we get kind of an intercut between that and um, you know the same thing happening on the train where you know the the renter starts just writing them down and then he keep, you know um, Oscar starts saying them in response and we kind of go back and forth between that and the scene with Tom Hanks uh, again, kind of maybe cementing the idea that Tom Hanks is the son of Max von Sydow in this case. And, you know, this is something that they share. You know, maybe this is something that he he kind of did with uh, Tom Hanks's character. Although the way Tom Hanks talks about his father, you know, just kind of walking out on them. It, maybe there's a suggestion that that didn't happen. But, um, yeah, I kind of I'd like I like the kind of intercut in between the two things. Stephen Daldry, when he wants to be, is a good director. And, you know, I think, um, you know, the kind of the, the like... I'm not a fan. You know, I'm not a fan of being underground myself. Um, you know, like if you if you think <laughs> about like being trapped in tunnels and stuff like that, that's not a thing I'm particularly. You know, but you know when you think about the subway, obviously it's not the, it's not kind of the same. But I would also understand why, uh, given the circumstances on 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 nine eleven, going on the subway would be one of those things where it's like, what if it happens again? You know, you're gonna end up being trapped on there. You know, the trains are gonna stop. You're gonna be stuck underground. There's gonna be no way to get out. If you're between stops, you know, like, how do you, like, how do you even get off the subway? You can't, you know. I've been on the subway in New York when uh, something happens and it just stops and you're just sitting there for 40 minutes on the subway being like, are we ever leaving this? Like, is this the rest of our lives? <laughs> like, you know, that feeling. And so I can understand why he he was so anxious. But then seeing Max von Sydow kind of encouraging him to go on there because obviously he's not going to spend his days walking around New York. As much as New York is a wonderful city to walk around in, if you're in your 70s, you're probably better off just getting on the subway if you're going to go somewhere of any distance. Um, and I also, it also feels as well, I mean, you know, we'll find out kind of the twist later on. It feels like maybe this is a bit of direction from somebody else of like, try and get him to do things 
that he doesn't want to do like going across bridges you know going into the subway you know the, the things that he's anxious to do you know maybe try and kind of you know uh kind of help him out there there is a funny moment as well when he goes to put the key into this gate and he just <laughs> next one side just opens the gate and he's like what are you doing like it's <laughs> it's open like you you know you don't need to trade in there like I, obviously he wants to try the key and everything but I just find those like you say there is a, a lightness about this kind of section of the film where it's like him kind of showing stuff to him and uh, you know we obviously also get him when he kind of takes him over a bridge by leaving notes and you know sending arrows and it, it ends up they're not meeting anyone they're just going to a bar because you know Max von Sydow wants a drink yeah I guess we've been kind of um, talking about it in this way already but this is probably one of the highlights of the movie for me is yeah. just his um, his uh, little travels with uh, Max von Sydow, and it, it's interesting that you noted how strange it was not to get the chance to utilize his voice, Darren. Because I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it in that way myself. Because when I think of Max von Sydow, I think a lot of his work with Bergman and his work in things like Three Days of the Condor, where you know his voice is obviously utilized in those, but a lot is made of the his general physical uh, language, like his easygoing nature in Three Days of Conjure, despite being a very antagonistic figure, or how haunted he has to look in a lot of Bergman's work. So uh, I maybe underestimated how how um, notable he was really flexing a different part of himself for this role. And yeah, I think he makes a big impression in terms of uh, the range that he has to play with, with uh, the character. Yeah, I mean, I'm more thinking of something like, you know, Minority Report, where it's like, he's obviously the villain. Like, <laughs> because it's Max von Sydow. <laughs> and, and he's speaking in a foreign accent in this particular film. You know, it's like, yeah, he's he's a villain, isn't he? Um, you know, so that like that kind of role. Yeah, so it is kind of interesting that he, um, you know, is not saying anything. But again, like the interaction between the two of them, I do like where, you know, Oscar is like, um, you know, after they go to the bar and he kind of he, like he tells his story via notes, he gives it to the barman. Um, there's the kind of thing where he's like, um, you know, it, like he's saying, I understand you have to walk slowly because you're old and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, you have to use the bathroom like three times an hour because you've got to go. And he's like, but can't you eat quicker? Like while he's, he's enjoying like this sandwich and those kind of little moments. It's like, yeah, you know, like I wish the film was a bit more of that. Um, you know, and this is also around the time that Oscar becomes convinced that this is his grandfather by the way that he kind of hold, he holds himself and, and stuff like that. So it's like, I wish there was a bit more of that. Um, but it just like, and his, I mean, his story isn't, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's okay. You know, like he was in Dresden, like he, he gives a bit of the background and, and obviously, you know, um, I don't think he fully explains why he stopped talking. Um, you know, like he, the, he kind of says to him, he's, he's, you know, obviously, Oscar can like ask all these questions, but he doesn't mean he has to answer them. Um, and so we kind of we never really kind of get the the, the the idea of exactly why he stopped talking. Is it expanded more on in the book, Robert? Can you remember? Or it it, it comes from his relationship with his wife. Oh, okay, and that makes sense. They are increasing actively ignoring each other. Yeah, and I guess you get the yes and no tattooed kind of. I mean that feels like out of pure spite, just <laughs> just so you don't have to even and, say and yes. I only that. just remembered a whole other section of that interaction that I wish was in the book, and I don't even know how they'd film it. Where the mother, I believe it, the mother is telling her story, but she's losing her sight. Okay, the grandmother. This is and the, yeah, yeah, the grandmother. Tom Hanks is mother in the film, and so he is typing it for her, but she doesn't know that the typewriter like doesn't work. Okay, 
but he keeps typing what she says anyway. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And it's, it's I have no idea it, how there's this whole thing that. of like people's inability to express themselves. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that sounds like something that I again feel, feels a little unfilmable. Maybe that's why they left it out. Um I also do like that Max von Sydow kind of pretends they're going to meet uh, one of the many blacks. Uh, but instead, he just takes it to a bar and just has a drink. <laughs> maybe because you know he's at this point he's maybe had a bit of a bit too much of Oscar, um, you know. And they even they even kind of like get, get to like a cafe where they've like spread out the map and stuff, and they're doing some of the cataloging. And he's like, you know, maybe we should just go home. Like maybe we should stop looking, um, you know. Um, where, and and of course, you know, when he's standing like on the the dock and he's like asking them these questions, and he's and he's you know he's like, do you believe? you know we'll we'll find the person and he's like yes and yes and then he's like you know kind of almost like is it worth going on he's like no <laughs> you know maybe we should just stop now yeah. like that's you know uh and this of course prompts him to show uh the renter to his dad shrine uh that he has in his cupboard that's like he has to pull out some little steps to climb up and then get in <laughs> and he's got it like on the wall and the answer phone machine message is there and he kind of tells him about changing the the answer phone and he kind of gives like a like a, a TikTok of the the day, uh, you know, saying that you know he'd he'd gone to to school, but then they sent him home immediately because of what had happened, and you know he says nine fifty eight a.m. You know the second message comes in, and that's when he's walking home, uh, and he got a juicy juice, uh, which I only really know because uh, it's a it's a lyric in a Doja Cat song, uh, so and I mean. <laughs> And it, in that in that case, it refers to a, you know a derriere. So I was when he said he got the juicy juice, I was like, oh, okay. Uh, but but yeah, and uh, the sixth message comes in at, at ten twenty seven a.m. He doesn't play the message. Uh, you know, we we'll find out later what the context of that message is. Um, but yeah. you know, obviously, uh, this I mean, this kind of you know, the renters again, like he's basically seeing his son and kind of hearing about his son's final day on earth. So it obviously sets something off in him. Um, we see later on that there's an argument going on across the way. Um, you know, uh, Oscar has got his uh, binoculars and he sees that there's some kind of argument happening between the renter and the grandmother. I'm guessing in the novel this is kind of more expanded upon in terms of what's actually happening, in terms of why they're arguing. Um, but, you know, we, we basically... I don't, I don't think the argument is, but by this time we know enough about the relationship. Oh, to yeah. Get it. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's more it's kind of more in context. Whereas at this point, we're basically looking yeah. at like a stranger and his grandmother. Again, her name is not given, <laughs> just arguing uh, across the way. Uh, obviously through some windows, so we can't hear what's happening. And then by the time he gets out to the street, we see that the renter has already called a taxi and he's got his bag and he's basically about to leave. Earlier, the grandmother, had, when asked about where he came from and stuff, she'd said, obviously, he moves about a lot. And, you know, she kind of implied that he, you know, he's a bit transient. And so, uh, you know, the fact that he's leaving is, is again, not really that remarkable. Uh, but obviously, as he goes away, we have Oscar yelling at the screen uh, about the thing, like saying that he, he knows he's his grandfather and saying that, you know, his dad was this you know he wanted to be a, a scientist but he ended up being a jeweler because he wanted to make money he proposed to his mother on like you know the second date or whatever and they go back to that place and propose every single year and he's basically given us the entire backstory of the relationship between tom hanks and sandy bullock because obviously uh we're not going to get to see much of that we haven't really seen that much of sandy bullock there was a nice moment where he he went to leave to go on his one of his many quests and he kind of leant down to the floor and, you know, they were obviously both waiting for the other to leave. And he says, I love you, like to the ground underneath the door. Uh, and, you know, she kind of kind of crumples a little bit and cries. 
Um, you know, again, Sandra Bullock. I, you know, I mean, I don't love her in everything I've seen, but uh, you know, I think she's pretty good in this. Um, you know. Yeah, I agree. I will say though that that um, that bit though, I, I like how they play that scene. I agree though. That is like, one of the scenes I think of with how the narration doesn't work for me as much because we hear the narration say like how the Thomas Rand character doesn't know how she responded. Like if yeah. she tried to say it back and it was too quiet or she walked away. But we as viewers know that she's there on the other side of the door. Yeah. So it's not a mystery to us. So I don't really see why that was needed for the narration because we are getting a different interpretation in our in the visual language of the scene in and of itself. Yeah, so I mean, just, just leave Sandra Bullock to carry the whole moment. You don't need the constant narration. Uh, but I feel that's a bigger problem. Um, and yeah, so we, we have this piece of newspaper that's been around where uh, it says, uh, don't stop looking. Um, and on the back, uh, there's another thing that is circled in red pen, and it is a phone number. And so, <laughs> as, I mean, in some ways this can make you feel that a lot of the film was a gigantic waste of time but he calls the number and it turns out the first person he met on this quest uh, Oscar nominated Viola Davis uh, Emmy nominated <laughs> Viola Davis uh, is the person who answers the phone and of course she's like huh and he's like what um, and so he kind of immediately goes around to see her and when he arrives she's like come on we've got to go um, and, you know, they end up going to see Jeffrey Wright, who is working in a very big building uh, with its own security that has a Dymo printer that will print you off a little security pass when you go in. And I was like, of all the things in the film, uh, that's probably my favorite thing. I was like, you know, when I was younger, I had like a Dymo <laughs> printer, like a little Dymo gun where you put the thing in and you just turn it and do the different letters and stuff. Um, so I was like, but yeah, that's pretty cool just to have like your picture taken and printed out on a little sticker that you could stick on yourself. Um, so yeah, so he goes up, um, he has to go up the elevator, obviously, because this guy's like up way too many floors for him to do the stairs. Um, so again, kind of getting over his, his, uh, his kind of anxieties. Um, and I mean, you know, this scene, maybe it's because Jeffrey writes in it, but like, you know, kind of, there's a moment where he asks for forgiveness and I was in tears because, like, you know, Jeffrey Wright's performance and even Thomas Horne's performance, you know, so good. He kind of explains what he's been doing about the key. And we find out from uh, Jeffrey Wright's character, whose name, I, is it William? Is he William Black? Um, I think so. Yeah. Which is also the name of a character in the Viewers universe. Uh, but I think in that he's called Will <laughs> Willem Black, not William Black. Um, because of a spelling mistake that uh, Kevin Smith made on a script. Um, but yeah, so we have <laughs> William Black and he explains that, you know, his father died and he had been writing, you know, a bunch of letters to everybody because he knew he was dying. And, you know, he, like, he, like he, you know, if, to all his family, basically kind of, you know, telling them what he thought of them, which sounds bad, but I think it's meant to be positive. Like he was kind of, you know, giving them encouragement. And obviously, you know, he got he got the, a letter from his father, but, you know, he... He, like he didn't know what to do so he basically held an estate sale so they could sell off stuff you know to kind of um after his father's death you know like i'm guessing it also happened close to 9 11 ish kind of around that time um you know a little bit before that so you know we find out later on that you know that he lost this key it dropped into this vase which is the vase we saw earlier that uh, got smashed up or vase if you want to pronounce it that way i don't think you should um and <laughs> so the key that's been found effectively isn't part of a quest that was put together by um, oscar's father it's just a key that you know 
Jeffrey Wright's father had left him for a uh, you know to a, a, a you know a, a, what are they called the boxes in the banks. Um, uh, I'm struggling for the words. Is that a safety deposit. Safety box deposit or? box. That's it. Yeah. So he's it's a key yeah. to a safety deposit box. That is what the key is. You know. Uh, unfortunately, the guy from June earlier he couldn't tell us that. Um, so uh yeah so you know we find out that there's something in that box and jeffrey wright even says you know do you want to come and see where it is and he's like no <laughs> um which i no. again for the audience i was like yeah i guess i mean like it doesn't really matter now because it's not it's not really oscar's kind of conclusion to the the adventure of this key it's 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 jeffrey wright's um and you know he he kind of tells him about the messages and he says that you know obviously there were six messages and by the time the sixth message was left he was actually home and he could have picked up the phone and he could have spoken to his father one last time um you know before and obviously he feels guilty about that um because obviously his father didn't get a chance to hear him before he died but also you know he didn't get to hear his father's voice you know anywhere else other than on an answer phone um and you know he he asks forgiveness of jeffrey wright and jeffrey wright's like why why would you know what am i forgiving you for you know like there's nothing was your fault you don't need to forgive you but he he does say you know i forgive you you know like wasn't your fault you you didn't pick up the phone and i think thomas horn's performance is kind of amazing where he's saying you know he was like are you there and he said it nine times and he knows that the time you know the third time he left a gap obviously hoping that maybe he picked up the phone um, and it's kind of heartbreaking where you're like, you know, that was his last moment. But on the positive side, he has got, you know, all the answer phone, you know, messages. He's still got those. He can still listen to those. Um, but this is where we see, you know, the, the final the final message gets cut off because the second building or the first building collapse, should I say. The first tower collapses and obviously that kills yeah. Tom Hanks' character. Um, and that is where, you know, the phone cuts off. Um yeah, and and he he takes he takes it so that you know nobody else will have to listen to that, um, and I would say as well if Sandra Bullock did hear that that would be very traumatizing. <laughs> it's obviously been very traumatizing to this kid, um, but you know I I just the, the kind of this scene it's really weird because this film <clears throat> I don't want to prejudge it I don't want to give away what I'm going to say at the end but you know I don't know that I could recommend people watch it but like this scene with Jeffrey Wright here like I said you don't have Jeffrey Wright walk in for like a three second voice cameo earlier in the film you have him for this scene and you know there's even a bit of when they go they you know they go back downstairs and there's just between him and Viola Davis there is the kind of like an energy which like you said, I mean you know Robert it sounds like what's described in the book happening between you know the the grandparents like the distance between the two of them and you know mm-hmm. you can you can see that there was something there but they they don't really talk directly to each other <laughs> you know they're they're just there to kind of talk talk to oscar as like the in-between like he's the one who's got this key he's the one you know like it's she's brought him there and then dropped him off and he's gone up and the, you know like the, there's been no real interaction between the two of them um you know and i think at that point we realized that the earlier scene was obviously something that was happening during their divorce you know he was moving out he was boxing stuff up you know that's why you know she maybe gave that with that elephant picture was his and not hers and that's why she was happy to give it away to oscar but you know you you do feel like a, you know a broken relationship between those two people um yep. you know but we don't get a chance to dwell on that uh because oscar runs off um and he's yelling and screaming uh, as uh, people are wont to do in films but if i saw a little kid running past screaming at the top of his lungs i'd be like where's that guy's parent get the where are the parents get that kid under control why is he yelling in the street some of us are trying to sleep we got work in the morning um but yeah so i mean i loved i just loved the the kind of interaction between jeffrey wright and 
uh, Viola Davis. You know, obviously two very good actors. And I, th I think it's really uh, like this film is frustrating because this is the kind of stuff that if we trimmed it down to to scenes like this, uh, you know, this film could be a great film. As it is, we've got a lot of filler that kind of distracts from it. And again, the voiceover and stuff. And we don't get any voiceover as he gets home. Um, but yeah, how's everyone feeling about Jeffrey Wright um, and his, his extended cameo in this film, really? <laughs> I mean... Yeah, I think um, when I was watching this HBO Max recently, I tried to time it a little bit. Isn't it like a little over 10 minutes long, I think, this section with Wright? I feel like he holds it down for a bit longer than I remembered it. Um, this was uh, the scene that I I remember liking the most when I first watched the film, and a lot of it is down to the way Wright plays off of Horn so gently. Like, you know, the scene that you described there, Darren, about being asked to forgive him, being put in that position to be asked that, I think that he reacts in a way that is incredibly kind and and a, he I think he plays it just he modulates it just right to approach this kid whom he obviously doesn't know but clearly sees him in pain and it's a testament to his skills and the way that he's able to bring about that understanding uh, in that scene very much so and and as as oh, as yeah. well when we find out the twist which is going to happen kind of in the next scene uh you get the feeling he wasn't he wasn't in on that um you know you get the feeling that abby knows but he doesn't right. and his character doesn't know and he's basically just got this kid who's turned up with this key and everything he's hearing he's hearing for the first time and that's probably why he's reacting in that way you know because this is this is him having to kind of figure out what to do with this kid who clearly is traumatized and you know it's clearly something you know he needs some kind of help and he doesn't really have the words to kind of you know other than asking for forgiveness because he blames himself for you know not picking the phone up um you know i mean what could have he said in that conversation not you know but he, he, like his father would have died halfway through the phone call that to me that probably you know just hearing it on the answer phone is probably traumatizing actually speaking to him as it happened you know would have been worse yeah and 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 i don't I, you know i think jeffrey Wright's character kind of knows that and is trying to kind of get that across to him and be like you know it's it does nothing there's nothing that could have been done better you know like the fact that you've got it saved on the answer phone machine maybe delete that one but keep the other five you know so you can listen to your father's voice again and so he doesn't fade you know that's the, the theme of the film has been that his father's memory is fading after like a year of him being dead and he doesn't want that to happen um you know but at the same time he kind of blames himself um but yeah you know uh he, when he gets home he destroys his nice little folder thing that he made with the little pop-up things and uh you know kind of rages as you know i'm sure as children we all have when we got mad over something we've just decided it's time to smash some stuff up um and he obviously yeah. does that we see sandra bullock kind of listening uh in the next room and she kind of comes in and kind of stops him just at the very end and you know she she makes it clear to him that um she knew you know like she's his mom she wasn't gonna let him kind of go wandering around new york alone um even though you know he took his his mobile phone and obviously you know she has to check in with him and stuff you know she had actually kind of gone to the trouble of you know as they say thinking like his father and kind of setting this up a little bit and kind of talking to each of the 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 blacks and contacting them beforehand and saying you know this is this kid's going to come and he's going to ask this and he's going to you know he's going to have this key and you know like kind of explaining it a lot of them are obviously like you know sad to hear about the fact that 
the dad's dead it's funny because what he turns up to this one where they got these kids and the kids are like oh it's the kid you know it's the kid we've been expecting <laughs> you know kind of giving it away mm-hmm. a little bit but i i kind of like that he didn't really kind of figure that out um and that's why i say i don't think jeffrey wright's character was in on this part of the scheme like abby was obviously in on it even though she was kind of going through a traumatic kind of breakup herself at the time you know she still kind of went along with what oscar was saying and kind of listened to him and i like my favorite bit of this is when we see sandy bullock and she's at like the construction site and she's like maybe he can sit in the 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 cab of like the digger and they're all like no 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 and then obviously he gets there and the story is obviously so sad that they've kind of been like yeah yeah sure you can can sit in the cab and he's trying to key in the cab and i I just thought it was a nice moment like his story is so kind of sad that people who would kind of object a little bit you know they they kind of end up getting swept away with it and we get a cameo effectively um from uh adrian martinez who you know in recent years has become a more prominent actor um but he's just a guy who just hector black who just hugs everybody and he like hugs sandra bullock a ton and then he hugs the kid the kid's like he hugged me like 17 times or whatever and i i kind of like that like he doesn't that's all he does he doesn't do anything else um but you know like it's interesting because you know oscar kind of realizes that like everyone has lost someone and that's you know, there's that one old woman who, like, is on the verge of tears when Sandra Bullock visits her. But when he comes around, he, she's a lot happier. And I think maybe because, like, the interaction with him has probably kind of cheered her up a bit. Um, you know, but it's just it's just a nice kind of, like... I mean, it's absurd, obviously. And, but the fact that she spent, like, as much time as he has kind of setting it up so that every time people, you know, that he visits people, they're kind of amenable. And, of course, there is that one woman who yells at him to go away and apparently also yelled at sandy bullock to go away as well so <laughs> you know so like they kind of get the same reactions but i like i like the you know like this is i mean you know it's like i say it's a kind of absurd thing that she spent this much time doing this um but you know it's kind of how they both end up connecting um and obviously it shows that you know San- central bullock is a good actor and i think you know the scene where they're kind of talking about you know shared memories of of you know tom hanks uh you know is a kind of touching scene um you know and like i say bit absurd but like i think the two of them managed to kind of sell it you know after his rage and you know his anger and stuff uh basically the key leading nowhere um you know we find out that basically his mom's been leading him on a wild goose chase <laughs> for months and and you know kind of happily allowing him his freedom basically to kind of uh explore the city and that's why i also think maybe she she had a bit of a word with you know her father-in-law effectively and maybe persuaded him to kind of say, you know, if you do meet him and, you know, he does come to you, then say that you'll go along with him and kind of look out for him, basically. Yeah, I think uh, I guess I'm of two minds here. On the one hand, as far as the plot resolutions go, uh, there is a neatness to it that is, yeah. I think, easier to buy in if you are already won over by the sense of community that the story has provided, uh, which is why, for example, maybe it works better for me in something like It's a Wonderful Life, where you see how George Bailey has affected all these people throughout his entire life, and there's an earned a catharsis in seeing that all come together, versus this, where it's a bit more random and happenstance and feels uh, kind of like out of a, um, you know, kind of like out of a, a very writerly story, uh, where maybe some of the people I connected to more than others, like the Jeffrey Wright, Max Moncio character, and then others I felt were a little bit less fleshed out and therefore didn't quite buy in as well. But I agree with you, Darren, as far as Sandra Bullock there. I guess we didn't talk earlier about um, 
the scene when they really have a big argument and he and Thomas Horne's character mentions how she should have died instead of Tom Hanks, which is also a bit of, I think, kind of an overwritten sort of dialogue there. But I think he and Bullock play that very well because of how Bullock is so accepting of that insult, saying, you know, that he's being very mean, but also saying that she wished she had died too. And even when he tries to take it back, she says, you know, no, you, you, you do believe that. And I, I still agree. Um, you know, there's a, again, a gentleness that she brings, a very, a sensitivity that Bullock brings um, to this part that I, I, I did react to. And I will say, Darian, I think you mentioned earlier, there's a scene you cried at and that, that one actually got a tear from me, even though the writing didn't fully win me over. Bullock was just so powerful in that moment that I, I said, oh, Oh, Sandy. What about you, Robert? Did you uh, have a I, notable response I, to me? I, I like her in this. I I believe both she and Tom Hanks spent time with the kid before filming so that they would have, especially Tom Hanks did, did a lot of effort into that, according to the production notes, because they wanted to be this perfect parent for Tom Hanks, whereas she isn't supposed to be. All she can do with her performance is show... What does this kid think of what she's doing right now? And we have to see through it and see what is she really like and how does this work? And the movie doesn't always let us do that because we're stuck with him. So it 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 works really well, especially here, because now he knows what she actually did. And it it works, I think, for the emotional beat. Structurally, it's a little too cute. Yeah, some of it. I mean, I mean, how did you feel it worked on the page? Is it like as a, as like a twist, does it feel a bit more kind of like you know? On the page, I think the twist works better. Yeah. Because, at that point, he needs her. Yeah. He needs that new connection because he's lost the key. It does. It, and that key turned out to be nothing. Yeah, it does. Or, well, nothing for him. It does seem like it's a bit of a kind of quick conclusion after you know he gives the key up to to Jeffrey Wright. Yeah, the the book I believe even jumps forward to a year, another year later. Whereas this taking place effectively within the same kind of time frame as like literally the right. same day. It's you know when he's destroyed, it just feels a, a bit kind of weird. Um, you know, worth saying that Tom Hanks is uh, eight years older than Sandra Bullock, but you know, I don't think we feel that in this film. They seem a bit more, um, you know, around the same age. Uh, you know, because I think he says they proposed when like she was twenty four or something, which would have put him in his like thirties. Which I don't know, seems a little bit weird, but uh, you know, right? I think I think it helps that he's a bit he's very playful in the few scenes that we see him with. Yeah, that maybe is enough to kind of pick up on there of the the strength of their relationship. In also, he's America's dad. What difference does his age make for whomever we, whomever is with him as America's mom at the time? Um, you yeah. know, and I'm not sure that anyone's ever thought of Sandra Bullock as America's mom, America's babysitter, maybe. Um, you know, so <laughs> people thought of America's sweetheart, though, right? I thought that was her, her nickname. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, we kind of we we you know we kind of get the conclusion where um, obviously he's feeling like he needs some kind of closure to this whole thing. Um, you know, I'm not sure that it's ever clear that he tells her about the answer phone message or anyone else has passed that information on because she's not really talking to Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Wright. And obviously, I don't think she's talking to her father-in-law. So I don't know if any of either of them ever passed that information on. Or maybe she's just listened to the messages when he wasn't there because obviously she's been going in and out of his room to... She used his, like, his, his carefully put together index to 
contact everyone before he contacted them uh, which you know is obviously a nice touch you know his his organizational skills came in handy for her quite frankly um mm-hmm. but yeah so uh he goes to central park uh where they were previously um you know where he was with his dad and he he decides to write a letter to all the blacks to thank them for the many you know, kind of adventures that he's had over the the last couple of weeks or a few weeks or a couple of months i don't know it's very unclear in terms of the timeline i mean if this is meant to start in the book it's eight months okay i was going to say because it starts re- around the anniversary of uh of, of yeah. september 11th there's two interactions with abby are eight months apart in the yeah book. So, but but there's no christmas that goes past here and we don't see a new year and we certainly don't see any snow in new york during this time so it feels like it's maybe a shorter <laughs> a shorter time That's period yeah like it's still all fairly spring-like uh, consider it's meant to be september although saying that i don't know i mean i've been to new york kind of around that time and it's, it's the weather's fairly fairly nice so um but yeah he goes to central park he writes the letter uh the one woman who yelled at both him and sandy she rips up the letter which she gets it which i thought was a nice touch she doesn't want to be part of any of this insanity um and uh he then goes to his father's swing there was a, a speech earlier that tom hanks gave about how you know he he jumps off the swing because obviously in that moment you know effectively you're flying aren't you you, know, you if if you can also uh, you know i i don't know how long it took tom hanks to learn how to do the pump on a swing so that you can get higher but come on doesn't everybody learn you point your feet when you get to the top and you bring them back in as you go down and that's how you climb without somebody having to push you come on i learned that when i was like yeah. 6 um right yeah so this is no revelation tom but um yeah so uh tom hanks was fond of this particular swing and so his his son sits on it and he finds in there a note that was left to him uh because tom hanks decided to destroy uh new york property uh to drill a little hole in so he could put one of his business cards in there and write on the back of it um and i was like seriously come on tom like you know it's not as if the guys who maintain the parks have got enough to do already um, you don't want to go drilling holes in swings. Um, yeah, obviously it's a miracle that no one has found it in the the year or so since that note has been left. Um, but I I like that obviously you know even though it's not really connected to the whole quest thing, he's basically you know his father is basically saying on this business card, uh, you know, okay, that's it, well done. You know, your your quest is at an end. Go home. Um, and so he kind of gets the closure anyway. Again, feels a little convenient, but otherwise we're going to be sitting with this mopey kid for the rest of the film. So um i do kind of like how you know that's resolved and also his grandfather returns um you know uh he doesn't say it doesn't appear that he says anything to the grandmother but he has his bag and he just kind of uh follows her into the apartment um so you know maybe it does seem like there's a reconnection and by the way i think uh something i only realized recently was that apparently this was uh zoe caldwell who plays the grandmother her final film oh. role before she passed away in 2020 i mainly know her as the uh councilwoman in lilo and stitch as a kid um so it was kind of fun seeing her in this and i didn't realize this was kind of the end of her uh her time on screen yeah she was uh yeah that's weird yeah i didn't even realize that she, she didn't she didn't do anything after this no this was her last film role yeah she was in lilo and stitch um and she was also in birth uh the jonathan glazer nicole kidman uh vehicle um yes indeed yeah and she did she did the same voices on uh lily on stitch the series so uh yeah and she she played maria callas on stage yeah so she had a she had a good run um cousin of hume crone uh famed old person 
uh, <laughs> and of husband of Jessica Tandy. Um, he was a great actor. Fantastic. Yeah. But yeah. Sorry, Darren, I didn't mean to cut you off too much there. I just thought I wanted to. No, I was going to say out. we hadn't. Uh, yeah, we hadn't really talked about her as an actor again because like she doesn't even get a character name and you know she's only she only really kind of communicates one or two times with people it's not you know it's not like she spends you know she finds oscar in the apartment and she kind of talks to him a couple of times on the radio but there's not really a huge amount that she's doing um but yeah you know it's a it's a it's a good enough performance in there but uh uh yeah so and uh you know the film concludes with a freeze frame of oscar on the swing he doesn't jump off we don't get to see him jump off he's just mid-swing Yep. and uh, you still swing to this day <laughs> yeah legend has it he was stuck because uh you know some of the the glue from the the i don't know the duct tape where the, the note was glued in there is so he's stuck to the swing swing in for the last 20 years um yeah and that's where the film finishes uh on a freeze frame which i thought it was an odd choice uh i couldn't remember that from originally seeing it but this time i was like oh that's that's where we're finishing uh, I guess the voiceover of <laughs> the letters to all the different um, family blacks kind of, you know, that, that kind of rounds things off, doesn't it? So, um, And I think we're also getting the hint that maybe in the future, you know, his grandfather would admit he is his grandfather and kind of interact with him a bit more and kind of get to know him a bit more now that his son is dead. And, you know, maybe that's something that's going to be happening in the future. Um, you know, and obviously he's connected a bit more with his mother now that they they kind of both did this quest that was pointless and led nowhere, and ultimately ended up with him giving up the key and feeling miserable about it. So, uh, well done, mother, um, for setting that up uh, for him to be disappointed. I mean, um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, I I mean, I would say this. I think the forty five percent on Rotten Tomatoes is justified. I think this is a if I was to give it a grade, which I'm not going to do because that's not what we do on this thing, but maybe it's like a 5 out of 10. It feels like a real 5 out of 10 film. There's a few really good scenes in it. There's a couple of really good performances. But overall, it doesn't need to be two hours, quite frankly. Uh, we could have either lost some of the hunt around that doesn't feel like it's necessary or kind of spent a bit more time with the grandfather and the grandmother or had you know a tiny bit more tom hanks or a little bit less sandra bullock or something like it feels like the balance of the film is kind of a bit messed up um maybe because eric roth was afforded the luxury of benjamin buttons being three hours he's forgotten how to write a screenplay that's a bit more concise <laughs> but you know um and forrest gump was like two hours something as well like he's it seems like eric roth likes to turn in a long screenplay um so yeah i mean for me I, I don't think that there's tons of stuff that works in here. Like, there's some bits where I'm like, okay. Um, and it is a lot to put on Thomas Horn. And like I said, there's a few scenes where he really kind of, uh, you know, raises his game to the level of people that he's with. But a lot of the times you're relying on other actors in the scene to kind of carry the film. And not all of them are doing that, you know. Um, like we said, though, Max von Sydow, great performance. Um, and it's, of course, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, Tom Hanks you know many years ago didn't want to be seen as a dad to the point where in the burbs they basically hmm. wrote out the kid <laughs> like he's barely in any scenes um so the fact that he's kind of shifted at this point in his career to kind of be in america's dad and kind of playing that kind of character um, and again it's weird because 
at no point in this film does anybody be like oh yeah but he had these flaws it's always like every single character is like yeah he was the perfect husband he was the perfect father he was the perfect son you know his dad walked out on them and yet you know he gave up his dreams to become a a jeweler so that he could support his family you know they've got a very nice apartment (laughs) that's got a doorman on on the door so they're clearly doing well and you know uh i thought it was weird as well because like their their family name is schnell Seems to be that there's an implication yeah. of some kind of, uh, particularly with them being jewelers, some kind of background there, particularly with the the you know being of German heritage. I you know there may be something unspoken where it's like, I don't know. It feels like the woman. If they if it hadn't been Tom Hanks and his extremely Greekness in the role, maybe they would have gone in a different direction with a, a different actor. Um, but you know, if it, it feels like there's some kind of hidden trauma that's this, you know, with the family kind of moving to America, that's kind of being covered up there that they didn't really get into. Um, but yeah, you know, Tom Hanks' character is perfect, and then he, you know, dies through no fault of his own because he was obeying instructions to stay on a certain floor of a building. You know, like he's just extremely perfect. It would have been nice if Sandy Bullock had been like, yeah, but occasionally he did this, but instead, she's like, yeah, he was the perfect human being, and <laughs> so it's like, okay, like. You know, it feels like there's maybe some stuff missing from the film, like a, a few flaws in some of these characters, um, you know, that maybe would have made it a bit more interesting. Um, it's it's the perspective problem. Yeah. Daldry and Roth both love the kid. Yeah. And it, that his perspective is the main thing. So they were like, he thinks his father was perfect. Who's the perfect dad? And they cast Tom Hanks. Yeah. Who? But then once you have the movie we want a different perspective we want it to make sense well i'm again like you know obviously at this point i've seen you know 30 something tom hanks films 39 37 38 i don't know how many at this point but i've seen enough tom mm. hanks films to know that he he very rarely is anything but the perfect person like that is that's his role in almost every film is to be the perfect <laughs> and you know i said this before but tom hanks this is a rare film where this doesn't happen, but Tom Hanks, usually his character gets what he wants. Doesn't like even let's say like punchline, he loses. And yet, uh, you know, um, you know, his his future mother walks out with John Goodman. So this is the second time he's worked with John Goodman. So John Goodman walks out with her and she's like, I don't care. And Tom Hanks gets to win, you know, and it, unless apart from the times where he dies i mean even in philadelphia he dies but he wins the, the case so his family are going to get all the money like he always wins yeah. and it's so weird yeah. that in this even in um, that you know even in road to perdition he dies but like his son is kind of set for the future in some way he's at least kept him safe from the mob yeah as well yeah this is this is it like his son's allowed to basically wander around new york as a kid and nobody hurts him in any way. Like, in fact, the kid even yeah. says to Sandy Bullock, he's like, didn't you think I was going to get raped or murdered or stabbed or something? And she's like, no, 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 <laughs> I was keeping an eye on you. You were fine. Like, you know, but she was a bit anxious about like hearing you know, the door shut when he came back. But at the same time, she was completely fine with him, like wandering the city because she knew he was going to be safe. Um, but yeah, this is a rare, this is a rare time where Tom Hanks, I mean, you know, he generally, I mean, there's a film I reviewed a few weeks ago called The Great Book Howard mostly it's colin hanks there's two scenes with tom in and in the first one he's a little bit annoyed that his son isn't going to be a lawyer and then in the second one he's like follow your dreams (laughs) he's turned around really quick because of course he's tom hanks he's the perfect dad he's you know and you know i think this film suffers a little bit from that like i would have liked a couple of flaws from tom hanks character like 
but it seems to have like turned him into a saint because he died in 9-11 and no person who died in 9-11 could be a bad person and the film is kind of hamstrung right. a little bit by that uh, but like you say i think it's mostly because it's the kid's perspective and the kid saw him as a perfect father so how would how would we ever find flaws in that particular human being um you know tom hanks gets to offhandedly basically slander his father and be like yeah he walked out on us because he was a coward and <laughs> nobody like nobody contradicts that nobody explains why his father walked out you know he's obviously suffering from some trauma himself but you know yeah max von Sydow, i think kind of redeems that character but it's still like from tom hanks's character's point of view his father was terrible and there's there's no point trying to tell him otherwise um so yeah this is it i, I don't know it's it's kind of a weird one um from my point of view i also think this might be uh up and, until we get to a beautiful day in the neighborhood this might be the tom hanks film with the most amount of letters in its title uh it might be the longest tom, <laughs> tom hanks those are the things that i end up thinking of but uh yeah how i mean yeah, how are you feeling just overall about the film before we give our judgments uh i'll say keith i think you touched on a lot of it for me darren uh there it you know revisiting this movie it didn't really bring it up for me much so i had a pretty negative experience when i watched the first time this time i was i was feeling that you know, to your point about the lack of flaws i just think that there are the sentimentality sentiment is kind of the, the first thing that's being pushed for this adaptation and uh when you don't have that sort of relationship or character to latch out into it can be a little hard to not feel like you're being painted to a bit um, when it feels so broadly told. And, you know, Stephen Dodge's a director, I feel like I'm a bit hot and cold on. You know, I really like Billy Elliot. Uh, I remember being kind of distant from the hours, though I've been yeah. really visited because a lot of critics I follow have uh, stood up for it the last few years. I don't like the reader that much. It's kind of the one of the ultimate cases of a bit of a prestige projects are taking the spot of better films in my memory and i haven't seen any of his films since this but i do i remember liking his work on the crown a fair amount where he directed a couple episodes of the first two seasons so this i rank perhaps in the bottom tier of his work that i've consumed at this point and uh the rewatch there were things about it that i resubmitted my appreciation for bullock and jeffrey wright and max von Sydow, but otherwise it was still a bit uh, uh cold for me this time around him i think speaking of speaking of daldry i think his what his latest film together is similar to this one in that it's trying to deal with lockdown and covid through a single relationship and a very limited scope this one tries a little bigger because it's you know city of new york i my general feeling with this movie i still like it i find i its flaws, I think, bother me more each time I watch it. But I wish it did slightly better at the box office, but only slightly, <laughs> so that there'd be a chance someone would 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 remake it as a like cable miniseries sometime. Yeah, just maybe another like, like another ten decade. million or something, just to kind of because it we're basically getting a third of the story. Yeah, that's in the book. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I had the and same... And you can do that. I had the same thought. Like, it, it does feel like if it were made today, it would be a TV series. Um, like, they did the adaptation of uh, A Prayer for Owen Meany, and they basically adapted, like, two chapters of the book. So they had to... <laughs> they were required to give it a new title. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what did they call that one in the and, end? Something... Oh. Uh, 
it's a character's name like simon simon birch yeah i remember seeing that trailer and just i mean (laughs) my skeleton left through my mouth i cringed so hard at that trailer for Simon. that's a tiny bit of that book and you can get away with it if you have a complete story i think this needs the rest of the story yeah uh, well, because th- then it would earn the schmaltz. <laughs> well, at the end, let's sum it up then as quickly as we can in as few words: T Hanks or no T Hanks. I'm going to start with Robert. T Hanks, but if you're going into it, know that it is flawed. Uh, I apologize, but no T Hanks for me. Fair. For <laughs> I mean, I would say I'm on the same page, and I would say no T Hanks. There's no way I could recommend. I mean, I said I couldn't recommend people watching The Great Book Howard, and that is a fun film. And I certainly don't think, uh, you know, I'm ever going to watch Charlie Wilson's War again. And that is a film that has some great performances in. There's no way I could. Re- I, there's no way I can T-Hanks <laughs> this film. I can't recommend anyone watch this film. I mean, I think it's funny because, like, you know, obviously, Robert, you talked about, like, the, you know, the imagery with the, the one tower and stuff. And I think maybe um, if people were, I don't know, like uh, five or six years younger than Keith, maybe, and they, they didn't have, like, a, pr- a proper memory of, like, 9-11, then maybe this is an interesting yeah. perspective. And maybe it kind of can function that way as like, but I would say they're probably better off reading the book if that's if that's what they yeah, want. You then know, read the yeah, book, like because the the end of the book is fifteen single images of the man falling from the yeah building, but in reverse. Well, that, that's what I say. They do so as you turn the page, he goes higher and higher. yeah. They do that in the film as well, where they have like the little thing where yeah. they have the falling man, but she, she pulls like a tab and it goes in reverse in his little notebook thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. know, and I think obviously if people really want to kind of get into something about nine eleven, then uh, loose change gives you all the truth, lets you know what happened really. You know, uh, Bush <laughs> did nine eleven. It was obviously an inside <laughs> job, so. You know, if that's if you need a full perspective on it, that's the documentary you need to watch. Of course, you need to watch. To be fair, loose change is fascinating <laughs> to watch. You need to watch. Ver- it is wrong about. Everything. You need to watch version seventeen though. They keep updating it with new information because obviously, you know, the government <laughs> get, finally releases files and they're able to really get you know go completely into it. So, uh, no, obviously, never watch loose change. Um, you know, but I, I would say the falling man, which is that the documentary about the guy who was you know seen falling from the towers, and they t- that's a that's a wonderful documentary um you know and uh, something that i've brought up previously is uh, there's a lot of two towers imagery twin towers should i say imagery in tom hanks films going back to the 80s like you know um like money pit there's a, sh- there's a shot of it uh, there's, there's a funny thing where it, even in bachelor party which is set in la they mention the twin towers at one point <laughs> i don't know like you know, there's 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 a shot of it in nothing in common. There's a shot of it in 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 uh, in big. Um, you know, punchline. Um, like, you know, like even bonfire of the vanities. There's some very prominent shots of it in the skyline. Uh, it's just one of those weird things that seemed to happen in Tom Hanks films during the eighties. Was like just throw a shot in of uh, of the World Trade Center. Um, yeah, so it's odd that he actually ended up making a film that used the world trade center is like an actual backdrop and he actually he's actually in the world trade center during the film so um yeah, yeah. i mean uh at this point i feel like we said about as much as anyone is ever going to say about this particular film so let's go to plugs is there anything that you wish to plug i'm going to start with keith because uh, i feel his might be the 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 briefer of the two <laughs> it's probably very accurate uh yeah you can follow me on social media like instagram or twitter my handle should be at kh allison 94 uh and yep they're just tweeting very casually or hanging around. 94, of course, because the other 93 were taken and not because that's the year you were born. Of course. Born, <laughs> which would make you... Yeah, no. <laughs> I was actually born in the year 1 AD, but unfortunately, <laughs> I just had to work my way up. Yeah. 
Uh, and Robert, I know that you definitely have stuff to plug if you wish to do that now. Yeah, I have. Um, you can find all my stuff at lemmingdrops, lemmingdrops.com or find me on social media, Robert E.G. Black. But currently I have four shows, three of which are interconnected. Uh, Minutia Ex Machina, The Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute, where I have one guest come in for a minute of each of those three films, Ex Machina, Groundhog Day, and Eternal Sunshine, and we make connections between them. It's an existential trilogy as the setup. And then I also do a show about Twin Peaks, which is very slow-paced. Twin Peaks Radio, I'm 31 episodes in, and I am not even to the minute 10 of the pilot episode of the show. That's the kind of detail that we enjoy in uh, the podcasting community. I mean, if you're going to go deep, Mm -hmm. you know, go deep. Uh, So thanks to both of you for being my guests here today and unfortunately having to watch this film again. Never never thought it would happen, but (laughs) hey, it was for good cause. See, funnily, I didn't watch it again this week. I didn't have time. Uh, but I'm the one who likes yeah, it. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably already <laughs> have the memory, so... Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and this, I mean... Well, I talked about it on Cock and Bull Minute. There you, so there you go. See, I, for, I, own, I only... I mean, I only saw it once at the cinema, and I literally haven't seen it since. So, which at this point is like almost exactly 10 years, uh, because mm. it was like the end of February 2012. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's kind of... As this episode goes up, it'll be like a month after the anniversary of that. So, um yeah uh it was an experience like i say probably never gonna watch it again um (laughs) so uh i think i think we can all agree that in many ways this film was an extremely varied atlas but the next one is going to be a cloud atlas